Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to another edition of Life Behind Bars. I'm Noah Rothbaum, the Daily Beast Half Full Editor. Joining me, as always, is my colleague and co-host, David Wonder. How are you, Dave? I'm hanging in there. Yourself? I'm feeling pretty good. We have a uh, truly a special guest today, um, our friend Max Shapiro, president of Heaven Hill, one of the largest American whiskey companies. Family-owned to this day, which is amazing. And maker of, you know... Some legendary brands like Elijah Craig and Evan Williams and Rittenhouse Rye and Pikesville Rye and a whole bunch of other things. And such an interesting story of the Shapiro's mm-hmm. over there, 85 years in the business, sort of really tell the story of, of American whiskey in America, um, yeah. you know, in general. Um, you know, And I mean, from real survivors, too, who, who you know made it through a, a lot of ups and downs. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about this on the on previous episodes, but the 20th century is a pretty tough century to be a whiskey distiller in America. <laughs> I'll I mean, say. It, it really, you know, whiskey, you know, is, is a, a lot of peaks and valleys, and to be honest, really more valleys, you know, ultimately. Um, it took a lot of persistence, put it that way. Absolutely. There's so many great distilleries and great uh, companies fell by the wayside during that time. And for a company to thread that needle and still be there and still be independent after all those years is is a real achievement we'll hear more from max uh, right now this should be great welcome max thanks for joining us i really appreciate it very happy to have you nice to be here well i, I know uh, heaven hill is is obviously has a Big anniversary this year. It's it's the 85th anniversary of, of the, the founding of the distillery, which is really an amazing milestone. Yeah, it really is. I mean, there's so much that went on during the 85-year uh, cycle that we've been in, the history that we've been in. Let me set a little bit of perspective here and take you back over 100 years, well over 100 years, to the late 1890s. And I mean, this whole thing started in sort of a serendipitous sort of way as to how our family got involved in this. My grandfather came over from Lithuania in the late 1890s uh, and immigrated, came to this part of the country, Kentucky, and settled in as an itinerant peddler. And he was had a pack on, started off with a pack on his back that had, uh, uh, that he was selling notions, you know, thimbles and threads and small farm needles and uh, stuff needles and threads and things of that and uh, that business got a little bit better and he got a horse and a carriage and that business got better and he built a or opened a uh, what we called at that time what they call a junior department store which sold all sorts of things we don't jokingly this is actually what happened they were actually selling everything from literally pickles in a barrel 
to small farm um, implements and just about everything in between. He had five sons, and as those sons became of age, which was long about the night starting in the 1920s, he uh, sent them out to open similar kinds of stores. At this time, it was really mostly soft goods, clothing kind of things um, in small towns in central Kentucky, one of which was Bardstown, and that was the town where my dad uh, was uh, sent to open one of these stores. Now, think about what happened. We had two big uh, historical happenings in the country uh, between 1920 and 1930. 1920, you had the uh, start of prohibition, the ending of the alcohol beverage business as one knew it. Uh, Distilleries were dismantled. Barrels of whiskey were destroyed. And all the other things that happened uh, started to started to occur. Uh, the Roaring Twenties were all fine until you got to October of 1929, and you had the Great Crash on Wall Street, ushering in the uh, uh, the Great Depression. So these two things were going on now simultaneously: the Depression and uh, Prohibition. By the late 1920s, one could see the prohibition wasn't working and uh, lots of calls to uh, repeal it. That ultimately happened in uh, 1933, and the industry was able to start again. Bardstown, where my dad was uh, running this junior department store, had always been a hotbed, a center, if you will, of the American whiskey business pre-prohibition. So there were a lot of people around who had been out of business really for 13 or 14 years, but wanted to get back into this really iconic American industry that dated all the way back to the earliest days of the Republic in the 1780s, etc. So a group came together and wanted to start up a new facility. They had lots of uh, technical expertise as to how to build a distillery, how to run a distillery, what mash bills would taste like and in terms of uh, the kind of product you would have and all those technical elements, but they needed some capital. Now, if anybody wants to think about a risky venture, think about this, being approached by a group of people that, oh, we don't know how to do anything. All we need is a little money. Well, the little money was in the uh, middle of the depression, uh, terrible economic times. And you were being asked to uh, invest in a in an operation that had no distillery, had no inventory, had no warehouse, had no brand, and even if you had all of this built, how much whiskey do you make in the middle of the depression that you're not going to be able to sell for years down the road? And nobody even knew if. Prohibition was going to come back either. I mean, that was a thing too. Like, yeah, that was being debated as well. You know, who knew? Who knew? Yeah. I always asked my dad about this, and he said, Well, we were all young, and uh, he and his four brothers, they were all said, All young. We uh, thought this would be really exciting to get in on sort of a ground floor of a um, business where nobody had any real advantage because there was no whiskey left over that somebody could automatically start putting a brand out there. So uh, they invested $15,000, which 
may not sound as like so much today, but in the middle of the depression, that was some big time amount of money. Yeah, that was substantial. But they took a deep breath. And of course, my dad knew nothing about the business. We, we jokingly say today, it was uh, private equity, 1935 style. <laughs> anyway, distillery was built. And after about 18 months, the individuals who had all of the technical expertise came and had a personal, some personal financial difficulties, came to my dad and said, you know, we have these personal problems. We're either going to have to uh, close this down, sell, liquidate it in some way, or you're going to have to buy us out uh, because we've got to, we've got to get some cash for, for our, to solve our own problems. Anyway, family got together and uh, said, well, we don't know anything about the business, but it's still pretty exciting. <laughs> and for another $25,000, so it's $40,000 took a really deep breath, probably crossed their fingers and uh, wondered if they were doing the right thing and uh, bought out the individuals who uh, uh, had the technical expertise. And my dad, because he was uh, living in Bardstown, running this junior department store, was given the additional responsibility to see if you could, if, if a family could learn the business, whether he could make a go of it. It was really tough times because... The economy was still in terrible shape, and you had no brand to sell. So, and this is a hallmark of what we have done over the years. This is a business, particularly the American whiskey side of the business, that you have to be really looking at the long term. You can't rush something. You can't make it age faster than it's supposed to. But my dad always said, patience and perseverance. He learned the business. He was very smart. He learned the business pretty quickly, hired some great people, including part of the Beam family, to be our master distiller. And that carried on for a number of generations until Parker Beam passed away just a few years ago. Uh, so anyway, uh, they waited and they waited and they waited until they had something that they thought was really a good product. And they brought out a brand called Old Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. And the word bottled and bond meant something because there was so much bad whiskey made during Prohibition. You heard the term rot gut came, to, uh, uh, came up. You heard people dying from uh, methanol poisoning and just generally bad whiskey from the moonshining era of the 1920s. Throughout the uh, Prohibition era, but they waited, and this was four years old, 100 proof, bottle and bomb. That was the, uh, like a good housekeeping seal of approval on your package because it, they were. It showed that you were being you had produced whiskey under the 1895 Bottle and Bond Act that set down the reg rules and regulations for much of what we are doing today. Soon after putting this on the market, Old Heaven Hill became the largest selling bourbon whiskey in the state of Kentucky. And uh, at that point, everybody thought, well, maybe this is actually going to develop into some real business. That's the early days. And if I, if I took you forward from those early days to where we are today, we'd be here for about two and a half hours. And, <laughs> and I don't know that anybody would even be listening. I do have a question about the, uh, the, the early days. That team that 
that approached uh, your father and, and his brothers. What distilleries did they uh, work in before Prohibition? Do you know? You know, I don't know that. Uh, all I know is that they had the technical expertise, as I was saying. Yeah. Build something and, and manage it and know what pHs were in terms of uh, of uh, distilling and, and, and how you made uh, put together the grains to make a uh, decent tasting product. I mean, they, they clearly, you know... Uh, knew enough to 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 get the brand launched uh, properly i'm just curious about you know their roots taking the roots of heaven hill back into the 19th century unfortunately i don't know the answer it's a great question I, unfortunately i don't know the answer to that one obviously your your family is running the 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 chain of louisville stores when did that end that part of the business lasted until really the early 70s they were, you know, as uh, the retail business changed with the advent of big box stores, it just didn't become a viable business. And it lasted until, again, the middle 70s, and it was closed down at that point. That was a not a great time for the whiskey business either, the mid-70s. Well, you know, again, from 1939, when we first introduced that first product, there were so many ups and downs, and the industry in general and we were part of the industry, so I guess it was us as well. Shot our foot, in the, shot shot ourselves in the foot, probably a dozen times along the way. Well, first thing that happened, and you, yeah, I'm sure you all recall this, when World War II came along. Remember, that's just two years after we initially put our product on the market. Uh, the government came to us and asked us to close our facilities down, the entire industry, in fact, to make alcohol for the war effort. I guess for munitions and various other activities. And, you know, that was your patriotic, uh, patriotic duty. You just did it. So you weren't allowed to make whiskey at all during this long period of time, except for a couple of th days and during that period, but it wasn't enough to be able to manage and maintain a continuity of whiskey. So when World War II ended in 1945, you had a big gap in your inventories, which interrupted what you had, were able to sell. Secondly, everybody opened all of their facilities up to start to produce at maximum capacity. So that led to lots of whiskey being put away in warehouses. And uh, ultimately, it got even worse because even more and more whiskey was made as we approached 1950, 1951. And we saw that we were going to be involved in the Korean War. Everybody was thinking that this is going to happen again. We're going to be asked to shut down again, which which we did were not did not occur because there were so many other big chemical plants who could produce the alcohol for uh, much more efficiently. Our production wasn't necessary for that. So as a result, everybody thinking, oh, this is going to happen. And they just kept producing more and more and more American whiskey, which led to overproduction. And then the industry went through a period of time when all they wanted to do was to get rid of that whiskey that was in warehouses tying up stocks and lots of money and uh, excess excess stocks and there was no thought given to packaging or presentation or uniqueness to the product it was a matter of slapping a label on a bottle and hopefully it would sell and hopefully it would reduce those stocks of inventory that you had in many tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of barrels of whiskey and then along about the 50s as you just pointed out you started to have a change in consumer tastes. 
where they were interested in perhaps what you would call lighter tasting spirits, mm-hmm. vodka being the leading element of that, as you started to see the rise of the Moscow Mule in California, and that became the rage all over the country, uh, gin and tonics, gin martinis, just lighter tasting spirits. And it was not the best of time for the American whiskey business, as we would say, uh, you know, it wasn't like it was falling off the shelf, but the growth just wasn't there. Right. And most outside analysts thought that the growth was not going to be there pretty much forever. And, you know, the, you know, it's sort of like the concept of they were consigning the American whiskey category to that great liquor store in the sky. Oh, it, just, it, it just wasn't going to be a very pretty picture. So it was a thing of the past, whiskey. Yeah, a thing of the past. Well, you know, it was always going to be there. It wasn't going to have the kind of growth prospects that the alcohol beverage industry was experiencing along the way. It was just, they were just, it was just an afterthought. And this is the way it stayed for a long period of time. We never could get our act together to do all the right things. And then along about the 80s or so, you saw single barrel product being introduced. Ah, everybody starts to wake up. Everybody's thinking, ah, you know, this is something that is uh, a bit unique. So what else can we do? And then over a course of a number of years, you not only had single barrel products, you had small batch products, you had products that had different alcohol strengths, mm-hmm. age characteristics, packaging was upgraded, uh, new concepts of of uh, recipes or mash bills were being created. And again, it sounds like, you know, I'm, I'm summing this up in like like uh, a minute and a half. This took a decade or two for, for all this to come to fruition. And I would say about the uh, middle 90s, you could start to see a bit of a rebound in the bourbon category. That gave everybody a, a glimmer of hope and, uh, but I just mean a glimmer. So, uh, you know, a few years later, about the late 1990s, you really did start to see something going on. We started, we, we got our act together, finally, after all this period of time of thinking that uh, there wasn't much uniqueness out of it in the American whiskey category. All of a sudden, creativity, innovation, all came to the forefront. and. By the, 19, the late 1990s, the early 2000s, uh, we were starting to see that real whiskey renaissance, and it's been sort of an upward ride ever since. And now today, the American whiskey category is indeed the global category of alcoholic beverages that seems to be selling everywhere in the world. But to us old-timers have been in business for a long time. It's like we never thought that this would occur. It's really quite extraordinary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. During the some of the darkest periods in American whiskey history, you know, rye whiskey really 
falls out of popularity and and your family and your company is still made rye whiskey still believe mm-hmm. that there was a future for rye whiskey like could you tell us a little bit about you know why you bought the like intellectual property for Rittenhouse Rye and Pikesville Rye. You're giving the company and all of us who work at the company a bit of too much credit. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Hindsight is 2020. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were brilliant. We were brilliant. We knew exactly what we were doing. <laughs> the fact of the matter was is that we had a customer that went out of business in Baltimore, Maryland, and he had a brand of rye whiskey called Pikesville. And he asked us, he said, would we be interested in buying it? We said, fine, we'll, we'll buy this. And we never thought it was going to amount to much. And, uh, and and originally you were selling them, you were making rye for them or you were? No, 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 we were not. We were not in the, we were not making any rye at all. And then, so, so we did buy it. We started making a little rye whiskey. And then in 1993, we uh, made an acquisition of a, group of brands from, uh, at that time, United Distillers, which today is Diageo. And one of the brands, a small selling brand, was Rittenhouse Rock Whiskey. And we took it almost as an afterthought. Uh, you know, I'm going to digress for just a second and remind me if I forget to get back to the Ross story. Over the years, through a number of acquisitions, I don't know, we, we just bought a, a series of brands. Some of them were just throwaway brands. Some of them were, were uh, acquisitions where someone would say, uh, we've got this brand, would you mind taking this off our hands? Almost literally, I'm not making that up. So we had developed a, a group of iconic brands that had been the left, that had been really not even thought about in terms of marketing or promotion or sales or anything that were in our portfolio. And we've, over the course of the years, have sort of collected some really iconic names that go way back in the industry. Uh, and we're and we're still having developed them all. We have brands like, um, like JTS Brown, mm-hmm. brands like JW Dent, brands like TW Samuels. Stephen Foster Rye. Well, Stephen Foster was... It was a label that we actually developed, but uh, that's one of them. A brand like Old 1889, which probably nobody's even heard of, but it's an iconic brand that was sold out in Kansas that part of the, uh, uh, of um, that was, was extremely well-known out there. They had a, a long historical life during, and we still sell some of them. So uh, the, these brands, brands like, Henry McKenna and Pikesville and Rittenhouse, as we've mentioned, all of these have been sort of on our back bar, if you want, waiting for the opportunity to bring them to market, bring them back to life. And we've done that with a couple of them. Now, getting back to the rye whiskey, the two brands we had, both by acquisition, Pikesville and Rittenhouse, were really left fallow in our portfolio. We were doing other things. Evan Williams was starting to build itself. We were concentrating on that. But all of a sudden, Rittenhouse rye, 100 proof rye whiskey, terrific taste, started to be used by the on-premise mixology in the mixology world as a base for whiskey cocktails because the taste came through at 100 proof. 
and uh, the whiskey was great. And and as as you started to have the rise of the old fashioned, the rise of um, the Manhattan, and many instances it was used as the base whiskey as opposed to bourbon whiskey. So that brand started to develop organically. It bubbled up almost by itself. I wish we could take credit for it for the for the beginning. We can't. But now that we but that, but over the last number of years, of course, we've seen this and we're now have developed it into a really big time brand. Pikesville is just another interesting story. That's one of the oldest brands in the entire distilled spirits industry that's been in continuous uh, existence since 1895. And other than during prohibition, that brand's been on the market for since 1895. So again, a very historical thing that we've had in our portfolio, and we're now bringing all of those things back to life. So again, so that's the Rye Whiskey story. And, and again, I wish we, were, we could say we were that brilliant, but we were a bit lucky. Well, I remember when I first became aware of Heaven Hill, it was around, you know, 2000. I mean, before that, I'd, I'd drunk occasionally. Uh, I'd come across various uh, Heaven Hill brands without putting them together as a portfolio. But uh, I, I started uh, with the, uh, the Rittenhouse Rye that I could get in California, but not in New York. And uh, that stuff made great cocktails. And uh, and then I was curious about American corn whiskey, and I find this stuff mellow corn. And uh, I keep finding brands. And when I look at the label, it turns out, wait a minute, this is a Heaven Hill brand. <laughs> and it, it seems like you guys were running a little bit of a museum of, of like American whiskey. Just We like uh, to say it in a much kinder way. We've been a nurturer of lost brands. Well, it was greatly appreciated at the time. And uh, <laughs> I have a funny story. I was I was writing for Esquire and Two, this was around 2002 or 2003. I called up uh, Larry Cass, uh, the uh, Heaven Hill PR person at the time. Bourbon Hall of Famer now. Yep, and, and a fantastic guy. And I asked him for a couple of uh, bottles of uh, Rittenhouse for Esquire. He said, sure, and it arrived, and I took it out of the box, and I looked at it, and uh, I called him up, and I said, Larry, how can you sell 10-year-old rye for 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 thirteen dollars a bottle, and he said, "What do you mean ten years old?" And I said, "Well, it's got a neckband on it that says ten years old." And he said, "Wait, look at those bottles." And they were seven hundred milliliters, not seven hundred and fifty. <laughs> and what had happened was uh, the warehouse guys said, "Hey, this stuff's going to Esquire magazine. Are you sure we want to sell them? Send them the uh, the regular written house." We've got this special 10-year-old bottling that we do for Japan and I think the Maison de Whiskey in Paris. That's much classier. Let's put that in the box. <laughs> so that's what I got. <laughs> that's sometimes how it all goes. I have to tell well, you. Uh, that was one of the best bottles of whiskey I, I, I ever had in my life. So uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I still remember that stuff very fondly. That was fantastic whiskey. 10-year-old uh, written house. That's the kind of thing that when you get one of those bottles, Rather than drinking, you're supposed to put it in your 401k. <laughs> yeah, wow. I, I, I think uh, I'd rather drink it. Yeah. <laughs> Did your family ever think, you know, like during these dark times, like the 70s and 80s, I know a lot of other bourbon companies, you know, diversified into luggage and 
dishes and all types of other businesses or tobacco like did the the shapiro's ever think okay like this is time we get out of this business or like we got to find something else to do or if you don't take anything else away from what i've been talking about or what will i will talk about the following is 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 the real takeaway uh, heaven hill was founded as a family-owned company in 1935 and was founded with unbelievable enthusiasm and hope for a great future. Uh, and here we are, 80, if 85 years later, and some things never change and shouldn't. We're at 85 years, and we have the same degree of enthusiasm today for our business as we go forward into the future. And we're always, I can say the same thing. That, we, that my dad and his brother said, 1935, we think this is going to be great. So some things never change and they shouldn't. All during these 85 years, being an independent, family-owned company, it's, it's just a hallmark of who we are. That's, that's the real DNA we have here. And um, we've grown a lot. Company's a whole lot different than it certainly was in 1935, but it's a whole lot different than it was just eight or 10 years ago. But the family-owned and operated aspect of our company has really not changed. It may have changed in size, but it hasn't changed in philosophy since really the day that we started this company 85 years ago. So if that's the one thing everybody takes away, that's what I'd like for them to take away. I mean, we make great products. We got Evan Williams and Elijah Craig and Rittenhouse and a whole bunch of other really fantastic uh, uh, expressions of really what is an art. But uh, being family-owned and operated is pretty special. We're able to look at the long term. We're able to do what's right, not just for next month or next quarter or next year, but what we can do five years from now and 10 years from now and 15 years from now. I mean, we look at the company, not sure we have three-year plans and five-year plans and, 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 and all sorts of uh, things such as that. But we actually view the company from a generational aspect, and uh, that's really so. That's really a major constant in what we've been able to do over the years. I know that your your daughter and your son and your son in law are all you know in the business work at Heaven Hill. Do you think that your grandkids like do you have any inkling yet whether or not they will ultimately join the business, or is it is it too early to say? Well, it's too early to say, but we but at least one of them is actually doing some work for the company as we pretty much speak. She happens to be all of a uh, senior in high school, but she loves the business world. And she's actually doing some little interesting things in the marketing area today and occasionally comes to the office and sits in on a meeting. So it's sort of interesting, but that's a little bit down the road. Well, thank you so much for sharing you know, your history and your family's history and, and American whiskey history with us. And uh, looking forward to the whiskeys that you produce in the next 85 years. So uh, hopefully, right. <laughs> hopefully we can, the three of us can reconvene in 85 years and, and talk about uh, uh, what has happened uh, <laughs> over that period of time. We'll catch up. This has been a real pleasure and thank you for having me. And uh, you know, this, this is our unique, iconic um, as American a business as there is here in this country. And it's a, it's really, it's, it's just a great business to be in. Well, we'll certainly drink to that. And uh, thank you so much for coming on. And it's always a pleasure and an honor. Well, thanks guys. 
Take care. You too. Cheers. Dave and I encourage you to drink responsibly always. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.